Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Listen to tales of dastardly pirates and amazing innovators, catastrophic accidents and devious crimes. This podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception. So get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. As I don't believe in sanitising the facts of history, these episodes may contain information that some people find disturbing. Those of you who follow me on my social media accounts will be aware that during the summer holidays I've been travelling and one of the places I went to was Lancaster, which was absolutely lovely. And it was here that I discovered this amazing and macabre story. Today's tale occurred in the year 1935, and I'm not going to lie to you, it was a big year for major events around the world. On January the 12th, Amelia Earhart becomes the first person to successfully complete a solo flight from Hawaii to California, a distance of 2,408 miles. On the 13th of February, Richard Hauntman is convicted and sentenced to death for the kidnapping and murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr. in the United States. On March 19th, a race riot breaks out in Harlem, New York, after a rumour circulates that a teenage Puerto Rican shoplifter in the S.H. Cress & Co. department store has been brutally beaten. On February the 26th, Robert Watson Watt first demonstrates the use of radar to detect aircraft at Daventry in the UK. March the 21st sees Reza Shah of Iran asking the international community to formally adopt the name Iran to refer to the country in place of the name Persia. On May the 13th, T.E. Lawrence, or Lawrence of Arabia, is involved in a motorcycle accident near his home in Dorset, England. Sadly, he passed away a few days later. The 15th of September, saw the Nuremberg Laws go into effect in Germany, removing citizenship from Jews. November the 22nd, and the flying boat China Clipper takes off from Alameda, California to deliver the first airmail cargo across the Pacific Ocean, and on the 29th of November, the aircraft reaches its final destination of Manila and delivers over 110,000 pieces of mail. And lastly, November the 25th, after 11 years in exile, George II returns to Greek soil as King of Greece at Corfu from London. But our event today occurred on the 15th of September in the northern city of Lancaster and was only revealed following a grim discovery in Scotland. Word of the Week and today, my friends, the word I give you is cognoscenti, which is persons who have superior knowledge and understanding of a particular field 
especially in the fine arts, literature, and the world of fashion. Confused? Well, let me give you an example. In the past few decades, a UK gastronomic explosion, led in part by Food TV, has the culinary connuscenti in a dither to find a national food character that includes barbecue, lobster rolls, forage salads and molecular gastronomy. Let me tell you about the main character in today's story, Dr. Buck Ruxton. He was a good-looking Parse Indian doctor who practiced in Lancaster in the 1930s, and he was loved and respected by many people in the community. Dr. Ruxton was born in India on the 21st of March, 1899, of Indian and French parents. His real name was Bukhtar Rustam Jeet Hakim, but he was known as Gabriel Hakim. Parsees are descended from the Persians, and today most are found in Iran, Pakistan and Bombay. Buck Ruxton was educated in Bombay, where he qualified as a doctor, and became a medical officer to the Malaria Commission. On the 7th of May 1925, he married a girl called Morton, who was a well-to-do Parsee girl. The marriage, alas, was short-lived, and he came to England and concealed all evidence of it. He also took this opportunity to reinvent himself and change his name to the more Western-sounding Buck Ruxton. He moved to Lancaster in 1930 and started his own surgery at Dalton Square. Dr Ruxton was considered to be a kindly man and was universally popular in the town. He was also, as it turns out, a very jealous husband. His new wife, Isabella Ruxton, 34, was attractive and liked to socialise. At the mayor's ball in the town hall, she danced all night and was in such demand, whilst her husband apparently preferred to sit things out and sulk. The marriage deteriorated and Dr Ruxton murdered Isabella on the 15th of September 1935 after a row at home. Unfortunately for him, he was seen by the nursemaid of his children, 20-year-old Mary Jane Rogerson, and so he murdered her too. To dispose of the bodies, Ruxton first dismembered them in the bath. He wrapped the parts in bedding, clothes and sheets of an edition of the Sunday graphic newspaper. He then drove to Scotland and threw the parts into a ravine near the town of Moffat in Dumfriesshire. On the 29th of September 1935, two women were crossing a bridge known as Garden Home Lynn near Moffat, which took the road over a deep ravine. Mr Jackson for the prosecution described in court what happened next. These two young ladies looking down into the ravine saw a number of parcels and they also saw protruding what they believed to be a human leg. The Scottish police were informed and there in that deep ravine, wrapped in parcels, were portions of two bodies. After examination, they concluded to be the bodies of two females. They had been horribly mutilated, the skulls had been taken away, the heads had been scalped and all sorts of things had been done to these two bodies. 
The prosecution suggests that the reasons for these disfigurements were to make it more convenient to take the bodies from Lancaster to Moffat, and secondly, to destroy any signs which might lead to their identity. The eyes, ears, skin, lips, soft tissue and several teeth had been stripped from the heads, making physical and dental identification almost impossible. Apart from the obvious ways, Dr. Ruxton used other anti-forensic ways of defying the identification of his victims. Areas of the body that could have held surgical scars or vaccination marks were removed, and the victim's fingertips were also removed. All the flesh from one of the victim's legs and the thighs of another had also been cut away. To be honest, when the police found the bodies, the police didn't know very much, only that one body was that of a woman aged between 35 and 45, whilst the other was aged between 18 and 25. It was scant knowledge to go on, but soon, after the anatomy department of Edinburgh University were able to deduce that the bodies must have been disposed of after September the 17th, having looked at the age of the maggots and pupae in the decomposing flesh. Unfortunately for Ruxton, several things he had done were to incriminate him. Firstly, he had wrapped some of the parts in an edition of the Sunday Graphic that had been sold only in the Lancaster area. Secondly, despite attempts to clean up, there were bloodstains all over the house and on his clothes. Thirdly, on his way home from disposing of the bodies, he knocked a cyclist off his bike in Kendall and failed to stop. But the cyclist took his registration number and contacted the police. Ruxton was stopped by police in Milnthorpe and his details obtained. He was told to produce his driving licence at Lancaster Police Station and sent on his way. However, thanks to new methods of forensic science, his crime was about to catch up with him. Word on the street. Now, seeing as this week we've taken a trip to Lancaster, I thought I'd feature a street up there. It's called Bashful Alley, which dates back to at least the early 1800s. The story goes that respectable young women wanting to go into town really disliked having to go past Market Street Corner due to the rowdy groups of young men that hung out there. The cut through from King Street allowed the bashful young women to avoid the unwanted attention, and so the street name was born, supposedly. If we go back further to the 1700s and possibly much earlier, the alley had a much less salubrious reputation and appears to have been populated by sailors and others looking to um, procure services from the women known to ply their trade in the alley. Other similarly named streets could be found in London and New York. So it's been suggested that the street became named Bashful Alley as a way of covering up both the history of the street and what had become a highly offensive word. And a little aside, did you know that in the 1980s a metal band formed at Lancaster University naming themselves Bashful Alley? 
Thanks go to the Lancaster City Museum for that little tidbit of knowledge. Dr Ruxton was tried at Manchester Assizes in March 1936 before Mr Justice Singleton, who at one point noticed the jury were busy scribbling notes. He told them that their notes might confuse them and prevent them from following the case for the prosecution. I suggest you will come to the evidence of the experts in this case that both women had died from a violent death, that the dismemberment of the bodies had been done by somebody who had medical knowledge and surgical skills. The prisoner is a Bachelor of Medicine and a Bachelor of Surgery. Said Mr Jackson for the prosecution. He then went on to give a few details on the Ruxton household. Mary Rogerson, who was from Morecambe, lived with the Ruxtons and had worked for them for a few years. She was very devoted to Mrs Ruxton and the children, as well as being a family-orientated daughter. Whenever she had time off, she would go back to her parents' home in Morecambe and visit her dad and stepmother. When the charges were read out to Dr Ruxton, he began to shout from the dock. It is all a positive and damnable lie. It is prejudice. I cannot do that thing. Is there no justice? Who is responsible for it? My heart is broken up. My happy home. This happy home for him revolved around Mrs Ruxton, who had been living in Edinburgh before she married the doctor. She was a manageress there of a cafe and her maiden name was Kerr. She's married a Dutch sailor called Van Elst, but they only lived together for a few weeks. In 1928, Dr Ruxton visited Edinburgh using the name Gabriel Haken. This was when he'd come over from India to study medicine in the famed establishment in Edinburgh. He became very friendly with Isabella before moving to London, and she followed shortly after. In 1930, the couple moved to Lancaster. He had changed his name by deed poll then to Buck Ruxton. And life started off blissfully happy, but soon turned into a world of fights and disorder. The prosecutor said, In April 1934, Mrs Ruxton went to the Lancaster Police Station and saw Detective Inspector Stainton, who went to the prisoner's house and invited him to come to the police station. When the prisoner saw his wife there, he flew into a violent temper. The following day, at the police station, he threw up his arms and commenced to scream and foam at the mouth. He said, My wife had been unfaithful, and I will kill her for it. He then commenced to sob and said his wife was breaking his heart. In May 1935, a police officer went to the house and found the prisoner to be very agitated and skittish, he was, as the police officer would later describe him, like a madman. He said to the police sergeant, I would like to murder the two persons in Dalton Square. My wife is going out with a man. And that's when a man named Edmondson was first mentioned. Edmondson was a 25-year-old solicitor in the town clerk's department in Lancaster. He knew the couple, and the couple knew not only him, but his parents as well as they would all regularly visit. Mr Edmondson said that, beyond the friendship, 
there was never anything to be jealous of. It appears, though, that the final straw for Ruxton was a trip to Edinburgh taken by Edmondson with his parents and sister, as well as Mrs. Ruxton. On the way, they passed over the Garden Home Lynn, where the bodies would eventually be found. The Edmondson party stayed in the Adelphi Hotel in Edinburgh, Mrs. Ruxton on her own in her own room, and Edmondson in his own room, and they drove home the next day. The prosecutor said, The prisoner's jealous mind had already become suspicious, so that he got hold of a strange car and followed the party to Edinburgh, putting brown paper over the windscreen to prevent his identity being discovered. When he arrived at Edinburgh, he inspected the hotel register. It is untrue that Mrs. Ruxton and Mr. Edmondson occupied one room, but such was the jealous mind of the prisoner that he came back from Edinburgh with the idea that his wife had stayed the night with Edmondson. The final straw for Dr. Ruxton appears to have been when Mrs. Ruxton went from Edinburgh to Blackpool with her two sisters, Mrs. Madden and Mrs. Nelson, on the weekend of the 14th of September. It was a family trip organised by Mrs. Madden and her husband, who took their child along too. On the Saturday evening, Mrs. Ruxton left home in the family car and drove to Blackpool to see her sisters at boarding house. She stopped the whole evening with them during the illuminations, had supper with them and left at 11.30pm to drive back to Lancaster. From that time on that night, she was never seen alive by any person except the prisoner. So much for Mrs. Ruxton. Now we come to the maid. Mary Rogerson was at home on that Saturday with the Ruxton children, who had some little friends to tea. A Mrs. Jackson, who called at 7.30 to fetch two of her children away, saw Mary Rogerson alive, well and happy. That was the last time Mary Rogerson was seen alive. No one saw the murders, but you may well come to the conclusion that there was one witness of the murder of Mrs. Ruxton, and that witness was Mary Rogerson, and that she met her death because she had witnessed the murder of Mrs. Ruxton. The prosecution suggested at this point that the murders occurred on the landing at the top of the stairs outside the maid's bedroom, and from that point... They were taken downstairs to the bathroom, as there were trails of an enormous amount of blood. I suggest that Mrs. Ruxton came up to bed, that a violent quarrel took place, that he strangled his wife, and that Mary Rogerson caught him in the act. You will hear that Mary had a fractured skull, but not of sufficient force to kill her, and she came to her death by other means. A charwoman. Mrs. Oxley was due to arrive at the Ruxton house at 7am, but Dr. Ruxton went to her house at 6.30am and told her not to come. When she did arrive at 2 Dalton Square, the house was in a state, with carpets removed, a pile of burned fabric-like material in the garden, later believed to be the victim's clothes, and the bathtub extensively stained with a yellowish discoloration much like iodine, used clean surgical implements. Crucially, Dr. Ruxton had specifically requested 
she cleaned the bathtub that day. The Ruxton children were whisked out of the house and taken away to stay with a dentist in Morecambe. This left Dr Ruxton time alone to try and figure out a way of disposing of the bodies in a way that wouldn't link it to him or Lancaster. Dr Ruxton used his skills as a surgeon to dismember the bodies in the family bath and draining the blood so as not to leave any trailing around as well as remove any identifiable features. Experts believe it took him some eight hours to complete his work, mutilating and expertly cutting the two corpses up into 70 different pieces in order to hide their identities. He removed the carpets from the stairs and landing and put them outside to be washed by the rain. Whilst he was busy doing all that, the paperboy delivered a limited edition newspaper only available in Lancaster under the front door. And this is what Dr Ruxton used to wrap the body parts in, not realising its uniqueness to the area. If anyone asked where the women were over the next few days, he came up with elaborate stories of them going to Blackpool, Edinburgh and even London. When he was questioned by police, he said, We'd arranged for all of us to go away for the day. I got up earlier for that purpose. We had not arranged to go anywhere in particular. And when she told me that she had changed her mind and was going to Edinburgh and would not take Mary with her, I was not surprised at this as she was always changing her mind. At 9.15am, I was in the bathroom when she tapped on the door and said, I am going, dear. I replied, all right, or something like that. I don't remember the exact words. On October the 1st, Mary's parents visited Dr Ruxton to inquire where their daughter was and were given a different story. So, their suspicions were aroused and Rogerson filed a missing persons report That's when things rapidly fell into place. Police visited Mary's parents, asking if they could identify any of the clothing that had been found with the packages in Moffat. Her father instantly recognised a blouse with a repair beneath one armpit he claimed his daughter had last worn on September 14th. Scottish medical experts were able to use photographic techniques to superimpose photographs of Isabella to the shape of one of the skulls found. It was a perfect match. Fingerprint experts were also able to match fingerprints from one of the hands recovered to fingerprints found within the house at Dalton Square, believed to have originated from Mary Rogerson. Replica models of the victim's feet were made of gelatin and placed perfectly in their shoes, confirming that the dismembered body parts were that of Isabel Ruxton and Mary Rogerson. Forensic entomology to identify the age of maggots gave an approximate date of death, and this was one of the first cases where these different types of forensic evidence were successfully used to convict a criminal in the UK. The jury took just over an hour to convict him for both murders, And in his written confession, Ruxton stated, I killed Mrs Ruxton in a fit of temper because I was mad at the time. Mary Rogerson was present at the time. I had to kill her. Despite this confession, an appeal was launched and a petition raised in Lancaster, 
which drew over 6,000 signatures in a week. It was dismissed on the 27th of April, 1936. Dr. Buck Ruxton was hanged at Strangeways Prison on the 12th of May, 1936, by Thomas Pierpoint, the younger brother of the famous executioner Albert Pierpoint, and he's buried in an unmarked grave in the grounds of the prison. Number two, Dalton Square achieved a reputation of notoriety and remained empty for many years. There were plans in 1976 to turn it into a sports centre, but nothing really became of that. By 1977, the house and the adjoining former county cinema had fallen into disrepair and the local council decided to spend about £18,000 on giving it a facelift. During that year, there were plans to turn the premises into a nightclub, but that scheme failed to get off the ground. And it was not until 40 years from the date of the Ruxton murders, in April 1979, that a scheme for the use of the premises was finally decided. The local council decided to use it themselves, and in 1982, Lancaster City Council's planning department took up residence. The bath, one of the crown exhibits at the trial, was later used as a horse trough at Lancaster Constabulary Headquarters at Hutton, Preston. But it can now be found in the Lancaster Police Museum in Lancaster Castle, as well as a photo of PC Tony Nesbritt and Countess, his horse, pictured at the macabre relic. Above the bath is a plaque recording the murders and the hanging of Dr Ruxton on the 12th of May 1936. The Ruxton children, Kathleen, then six, Diane, four, and Billy, two, were all taken into care after the murders, and all the furniture and the house were sold. Funds were set up to help the Ruxton children and the Rogersons. The Rogersons, Mary's family, suffered another tragedy in February 1937 with the death of their son, Peter. The dismembered remains of Mary Rogerson were buried in the churchyard at Overton, a small village neighbouring the town of Morecambe, and Isabella Ruxton's remains were taken back to Edinburgh. Much like the Lizzie Borden murders, this one spawned a nursery rhyme. Red stains on the carpet, red stains on the knife. Oh, Dr Buck Ruxton, you cut up your wife. The nursemaid she saw you and threatened to tell. So Dr Buck Ruxton, you killed her as well. The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. This incredible historical adventure follows a path of exciting events led by interesting people who reach beyond their grasp to touch key moments in time. The History of North America podcast series is an educational and entertaining look at the thrilling chronicle of North America, an action-packed tale of a continent that is still unfolding.
I invite you to come along for the ride. In breaking news today, the CEO of IKEA has been elected Prime Minister of Sweden. He's currently assembling his cabinet. Back in the day facts. Righto, let's start off with the 3rd of September 1650, when Oliver Cromwell's English New Model Army defeats the Scottish force in a surprise attack at the Battle of Dunbar. On the 4th of September 1884, Britain ends its policy of penal transportation to New South Wales in Australia. The 5th of September, 1666, sees the Great Fire of London ending, leaving 13,200 houses destroyed and only eight dead. It is well known that the fire started on Pudding Lane in a baker's, and the baker, Thomas Farina, believed he put the fire out, but in the middle of the night, the fire grew and his house was in flames. Pudding Lane is still there today. If you want to visit it, Monument is the nearest tube station. The place where the fire started is also marked by a monument. Back in 1666, they didn't have proper firefighters like we do today, which meant they didn't have the tools to stop the fires. So, the Navy used gunpower to blow up houses that were in the fire's path. They hoped that if they did this, they would stop the fire travelling. It ended up working, but took many days. And in the end, with the wind, the fire travelled one and a half miles. On the 6th of September 1880, Bristol's own W.G. Grace scores 152 in debut Test cricket innings versus Australia at the Oval. The 7th of September 1996 saw rap artist Tupac Shakur shot multiple times in a drive-by shooting in Las Vegas. He died six days later. And lastly, on the 8th of September 1965, and lastly, on the 8th of September 1965, there was a small ad in Daily Variety and Hollywood Reporter, which attracted 437 young men interested in forming the world's first manufactured boy band, the Monkees. Three were chosen, with Davy Jones already having been cast. Well, that, my friends, signals the end of the show today. And I hope you enjoyed it and found it as interesting as I did. Today, I have to thank those that really brought this story to life. And they include Joe Wilson and Sophie Townsend from St Stephen's Drama Group, as well as Steve Shepherd my very own Bradley Stoke Radio. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. 
So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.